Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. As we turn to 1 Kings, we continue in the story of the people of Israel, particularly the story of Israel's monarchy that began in 1 and 2 Samuel and the stories of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. 1 Kings begins with the transition of power from David to his son, Solomon, who builds the temple where Solomon then goes to pray and plead to God for blessings on Israel. Instead, civil war erupts and the kingdom is divided. Enter the prophet Elijah, who King Ahab calls a troubler of Israel. Elijah tries to turn things around for Israel and reveals in a contest that the god Baal is no match for the god of Israel, who can produce fire out of thin air. Ahab was convinced. The prophets of Baal are killed, and Ahab goes to his wife Jezebel to tell her what has happened. However, she's not that easily swayed as Ahab. Let's hear what happens next as we turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1-13. through 13. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elisha saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? It happens from time to time, and often at the most inconvenient time, that one of those warning lights suddenly flashes on the car dashboard. And depending on which light flashes and where you happen to be, it can be a panic-inducing experience. If it's the oil pressure light, you know you have an urgent problem and a soon-to-be-very-expensive problem if you don't act quickly. If it's the temperature warning light, it's just a matter of time before that cloud of steam begins to billow up like hot lava from underneath the hood. But what about the check engine light? It could signal a million different issues, none of which seem at the time to be an urgent problem. Have you ever noticed that? The car is still driving just fine, so you, do you get it checked out tomorrow, maybe next week? Do you, do you put it off, wait it out, hoping it just turns itself off? But the one light that always creates a dilemma for me is the low fuel light. This is the dash light responsible for about 80% of all marriage counseling. Nobody really agrees on what it means. You, you got some time, but how much time? Do you, do you drive another 20 miles? Can you get 40? And you think, you know, the last time the fuel light went off, I, I made it 50 miles easily. And I confess that I've done this maybe two or three or 40 times. I, it drives Lori crazy. I've got this, I tell her, relax, we've got plenty of gas to get us there. Famous last words. Over 800,000 motorists run out of gas on highways every year. Are you one of them? According to one report, a significant portion of drivers overestimate how much fuel they have left in the tank. And isn't that true also when it comes to gauging our inner reserves. Do you ever feel like you're running on fumes, emotionally, physically, spiritually? Think about your life right now. How much do you have left in the tank? Are you close to empty, to burnout, even breakdown? We do have some warning signs, but we often struggle to recognize and act upon them. What are they? Well, you might be running on empty or experiencing burnout if you have trouble sleeping or a loss of appetite or if you find yourself overeating or if you suffer from chronic exhaustion, the kind that's not relieved by sleep or ordinary rest or if you suffer from headaches, stomach aches, anxiety attacks, if you experience outbursts of anger or bouts of depression, or thoughts of hopelessness and apathy and cynicism. Are any of these lights flashing for you right now? If so, it, it's time to pull over and check in with yourself, to ask yourself or find someone who can help you ask these questions. What's going on? How did I get here? What am I doing here? Maybe it helps to hear the story of Elijah and his own personal experience with burnout. To hear the question that God asks while he's in deep crisis. What are you doing here, Elijah? 
It's around the year 900 BCE. Ahab is the king of Israel, and Ahab is married to a foreigner named Jezebel. Now, Jezebel isn't Jewish, which creates some problems for Ahab. Jezebel has her own pagan religion called Baalism, which she takes very seriously, by the way. Baalism was a a nature religion that focused on the mysterious life force of nature. And its rituals and ceremonies were directed to the fertility gods, which meant that Baal worship was, how shall we say this, very carnal, risque, and scandalous. To the Jews, it was immoral. Let's just say that the local Baal church on the corner didn't offer any children's programming on Sunday mornings. Jezebel is so devoted to her religion that when she marries Ahab and moves into the palace, she brings with her about 400 Baal priests and another 400 Baal prophets. This creates a big problem for Ahab, the king of Israel, because as you recall, Israel worships only one God, Yahweh, a jealous God who, with the very first commandment, says, you shall have no other gods before me. If you're Ahab, what do you do with 800 pagan preachers living in your palace? (laughs) Nobody wants that many preachers around them regardless of their religion, right? Mark Twain once said that preachers are a lot like cow manure. When there's a whole lot of them together, they raise a big stink. Well, there's There's a big stink in the palace. And that's when Elijah, Yahweh's greatest prophet, appears on the scene. Elijah informs Ahab that because he's keeping these 800 pagan preachers in the palace, God is going to send a long drought over the land. Well, two years later, those 800 pagan preachers are still in the palace. And the drought is choking the nation of Israel. So Elijah decides to take matters in his own hands. And he challenges Jezebel's pagan preachers to a contest. Now, let me just say, this contest is a little weird. Elijah says, slaughter two oxen, one for you, one for me. Lay each oxen on a separate woodpile, but don't ignite the wood. We're going to have a a pray-off, so to speak. You pagans pray to Baal. I'll pray to Yahweh, and we'll see which woodpile ignites first. Like I said, it's, it's a weird contest, but it, it is 900 BCE. They didn't have rock, paper, and scissors back then. So uh, the preachers pray for Baal to send down fire, and when nothing happens, they pray even harder, singing and chanting and dancing around, and that's when Elijah begins to mock them. He says, maybe your God is napping right now. Or maybe he's in the bathroom right now. When the pagan preachers finally step aside, Elijah starts praying to Yahweh. And of course, immediately, Yahweh sends this blast of fire from the sky. The wood ignites, the contest is over, Elijah wins. But here's the problem. Instead of dropping the mic right then and just walking away, Elijah then gets medieval on those pagan preachers slaughtering all 800 of them. The scripture doesn't say how he does it exactly, but he does it. You could say he overdoes it, that he goes too far. The scripture actually calls it a massacre. 
to defeat the monster, Elijah has become something of a monster himself. Of course, all at once, it begins to rain. The drought is over. Israel is saved. But, but imagine the pillow talk that night between Ahab and Jezebel. <laughs> uh, Jez, baby, um, you're never going to guess what happened today. Turns out Yahweh really is God and Baal isn't. Who knew? Oh, and by the way, Jezzy, your 800 preacher friends uh, bought the farm today. Jezebel immediately reaches for her smartphone and sends Elijah a little tweet. I'm going to kill you, Elijah. Hashtag dead man prophet. Hashtag Jezebel's revenge. Hashtag Elijah's dirt nap. Elijah runs for his life, taking refuge in a desolate cave. Alone and desperate, he prays, God, it's hopeless. Just let me die. God leaves Elijah there for 40 days to think about his life and what's become of him. An angel brings him bread and water to revive him. And on the 40th day, God appears and asks a question that changes everything. Elijah, what are you doing here? It's both the what and the here of God's question that Elijah needs most to hear and most to answer. What have I done that has led me to this place and this time in my life? What are you doing here, Elijah? What's gotten you into this mess? Elijah's running on empty, burned out, bummed out with the blahs and the blues, but his story offers some clues about how we too are prone to to find ourselves in a similar hole. What factors lead to burnout? And how do we reignite that flame to burn in more sustainable, life-giving and light-giving ways? The first cause of burnout is our human tendency to overestimate our importance and impact while underestimating God's power and providence. God says, Elijah, tell me, what are you doing here? And what does Elijah tell God? Listen to this false narrative that Elijah has created about himself. He says in scripture, I've been working my heart out for you. Because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed your places of worship, murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. In other words, God, do you have any idea how indispensable I've been to your plans? Don't you see how much I've done, the sacrifices I've made? No one else can possibly do this. Elijah is a good man with a worthy cause. But he's brought, he's bought into this popular myth that says, if I don't do it, nobody else will. The 16th century Christian mystic, Teresa of Avila, is believed to have written these memorable words which have inspired Christians to action over so many centuries. She said, Christ has no body, but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours 
are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world, the feet with which he walks to do good, the, the hands through which he blesses all the world. Christ has no body on earth but yours. We are the hands and feet of God on earth, but what happens when we convince ourselves that we're the only hands and feet of God? When we take responsibility for things we're not responsible for? God never asked Elijah to massacre Jezebel's preacher friends. That wasn't Elijah's responsibility. When we live as if the whole world, even God, is depending on us for everything, we will eventually crash and burn. And we may even do something impulsive, even destructive. And we will likely then blame others or God for our burnout. Like Elijah, we believe that our lives matter to God, that we have a contribution to make. But we may also fear that we haven't done quite enough. And Elijah helps us see that there are times when we can care too much at the expense of something else that's equally as important, like our own health and well-being, or the well-being of others. Years ago, a, a friend gave me a, a small toy figurine of the Reverend Lovejoy from the TV series, The Simpsons. Lovejoy is that irreverent, tactless, cynical preacher from Springfield who who makes astonishing comments that you'd never expect a preacher to say. And there's a little button on that figurine that, when pressed, plays a recording of Reverend Lovejoy's most notorious comments, like, it's all over, people. We don't have a prayer. Or, as we pass the collection plate this morning, please give as if the person next to you is watching. Or my favorite, there's more to being a minister than not caring about people. And you don't have to be a minister to relate to that last line. Because there's an inner Reverend Lovejoy in all of us. The voice of apathy or cynicism in the face of, of so many demands in life. That's what leads Elijah to his cave. He says, God, I did my part. It didn't work. And now I'm just tired of caring. Have you ever been there? Maybe a, a colleague pours out her troubles in a puddle of tears because you're the only one who ever listens. And as she unloads her grief, your phone rings. It's your child's school counselor calling for the third time today because your child is failing miserably and nothing is working. Meanwhile, your spouse is homesick. He calls, can you, can you stop by the pharmacy on your way home? And your aging father calls, hey, can you take me to the doctor on your lunch break? And on your way to pick him up, you stop at the gas station and, and there's a man with his hand out. Can you spare a dollar? And you wonder, does it ever end? Haven't I done enough already? Elijah's story reminds us that God is God and we are not. We can do good things for God's sake, but God can do extraordinary things without us, even while we rest in a cave. And sometimes the most faithful thing we can do when there's nothing left for us to give is to remain in the cave and rest, to get out of God's way and let God do what we cannot do. The late theologian 
John Westerhoff said, atheism in the modern world is characterized by the popular affirmation which says, if I don't do it, it won't happen. What's the antidote to this? It's knowing that taking a Sabbath day of rest is a commandment, not a suggestion. That one day of rest not only saves us from burnout, but it saves the world and others from the damage we're apt to do when we are burned out. The Sabbath gives us permission to leave room for God to do what we cannot do. In the early church, centuries ago, the the mystics went into the desert to be alone and pray. They did this because in the city, it was was easy to focus on the needs and problems of others. But in the desert, they had to deal with themselves, which is why they referred to the solitude of the desert as, quote, the furnace of transformation, where they learned deep compassion so that when they returned to the city, people experienced their compassion as genuinely healing. Why does God keep Elijah in that cave for 40 days? Because Elijah's been so zealous for God that he began to play God. He did a lot of damage, and it nearly cost him his life. In solitude, he learned the compassion of God and the limits of his own power. The second cause of burnout is our tendency to try to go it alone. Did you notice Elijah has nobody? It's just Elijah taking on the world and in the story, the world strikes back. Who walks with you? Luke Skywalker had Yoda. Simba had Mufasa. The Karate Kid had Mr. Miyagi. The dude had the stranger. Moses had Aaron. Naomi had Ruth. Mary had Elizabeth. Who do you have? Aloneness is the hidden disease of our generation. There's never been a lonelier bunch of people in the history of humankind. All of us going somewhere, but few of us going with someone. Elijah reminds us that we can't go it alone. His aloneness gets him into trouble. And his aloneness nearly kills him until an angel visits him in that little cave and gives him bread and water. Companionship, kinship, and community. These are the essential things we need for the proper care and feeding of humans. Eric Clapton, one of the most accomplished musicians of our generation, wrote a wonderful autobiography years ago in which he described his struggle with addiction and recovery all made more complicated when his little boy fell to his death from a high-rise apartment window. Clapton said there was a moment when he lost his faith. But what saved him was the unconditional love and understanding he received from his friends in a 12-step program. He said, I would, I would go to a meeting and people would quietly gather around and keep me company, buy me coffee, and let me talk about what had happened. 
Before the death of his son, Clapton was in rehab when he was going through the third step that was to, to turn one's will and life over to the care of God. In that moment, he fell on his knees and he asked for help to stay sober. And he said, in that moment, the compulsion to drink was taken from me. After his son's death, he, he told his AA friends at one meeting about that experience. And he said it was physical evidence for him that his prayers had been answered. And that having had that experience, he knew that he would get through this tragedy as hard as it was. A woman at that meeting later told him that he had just robbed her of her last excuse to drink. She said that in the back of her mind, she'd always held the excuse that if anything were to happen to my kids, then I'd be justified in drinking again. And she told Clapton, you've shown me that's not true. And in his book, Clapton says, I was suddenly aware that maybe I had found a way to turn this dreadful tragedy into something positive. I was in the position to say, well, if I can go through this and stay sober, then anyone can. There is no way through our wildernesses alone. God sends angels to care for us. In your wilderness, when you're lost and burned out, look for the angels. One last cause to our burnout is our tendency to neglect the still small voice. I love how Elijah's wilderness story ends. Elijah is told, go stand on the mountain at attention. God will pass by. And what happens in the story? It says, a hurricane wind ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks, but God wasn't to be found in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a gentle and quiet whisper. Too often we assume that God speaks only in shouts, in bold signs and wonders, hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, the unmistakable, the unignorable. It's easy to assume this because that's how Scripture tells us that God reaches us. There are burning bushes and floods, rainbows, miracle healings, uh, water turned into wine, resurrections. But most often, God speaks in a still, small voice. Listen to what may simply look like a strange coincidence. Listen to it. Listen to what may seem like a lucky break. Listen to what you think was a bad break that turned into something extraordinary. Listen to the voice that is spoken to you through another person. A friend who says, you should marry her. A mentor who says, have you ever thought about a career in this field? A counselor who says, are you finally ready to make some changes in your life? Listen to the still a small voice in prayer, in silence. Listen at the top of a 14er. Listen to it in a choral anthem or in a midnight dream. 
if we are looking for rainbows or burning bushes, we are bound to miss such voices. But they are all around us. They're even within us. And when we stop to listen, we will hear them. And what they're all saying is something akin to what that still small voice said to Elijah. What are you doing here? Get up and go. Our takeaways for today. If God wants it to happen, it will happen, even without you. God sends angels to care for us. Look for them. God most often speaks not in shouts, but in whispers. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be all as it should be. Blessed be your name. And blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. in Lord still I will say blessed be the name of the Lord blessed be your name
out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be your glorious name. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.